You are listening to the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. These talks are made possible in part by generous donations from our listeners. To find out how to support and take part in our community, visit zennovascotia.com. In the last couple of years, I've noticed something interesting about how people are relating to the Dharma. I think it's a shift. For me, it's a shift, though, though maybe it's part of a cycle and I'm just seeing this, this section for the first time. But when I was teaching in Alaska, there were lots of political questions around Buddhism within the Sangha. You know, how can we as a Sangha relate to the death penalty or these kinds of moral issues? But it was, it was just as I was leaving that the economy was, was collapsing and we hadn't yet seen the Occupy movement. And then I went to Japan for four years. And when I came back, I found that I would talk to people who uh, were concerned about how Buddhism as a, as a body of teachings and as a practice served this other purpose of fighting the man. How do we take down the establishment? I mean, it's very interesting. You know, where does Buddhism fit in a narrative of revolution? And I've heard this a few times. Uh, one time just recently and another time right when I arrived here and, and uh, when I've traveled. So I, it's been on my mind, and I, I want to speak to this a little bit today, this question of, of fighting the power and how that fits into Buddhism. And, and I want to say from the beginning, I don't, I don't mean to position this as a kind of defense of Buddhism, because actually the, the concerns that people might have are, are very real. The concern that I hear is that Buddhism is... Uh, is not suited to the task of fighting institutions. That in fact, it's, it's the opposite. That, that Buddhism is a way of making ourselves complacent. And that can certainly be true. I would say it's a misapplication, but it's absolutely true. We all are in danger of that all the time. There's so much emphasis on looking at ourselves. There's so much emphasis on coming to terms with our reality. That we can, we can cross a line very easily. where we look at the difficulties that other people are having, we look at the ills of the world and we say, well, no, this is, this is my problem. <laughs> this, is, this is a spiritual problem. And I, if I can come to terms with this, that's a great accomplishment. And we leave it there. I think that's a very seductive notion and I think it's always present. There's so many ways that we can get the wrong message 
from this practice because it's being offered up all the time. And I, I made a list of, of three, but I think there are more. One that I was certainly guilty of for a long time was the idea that, that maybe we have to fix ourselves first. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there are serious things that need to be addressed. But as long as I have not attained perfect enlightenment, I am just as deluded as everybody else. So I should stay out of it. Right? But one day, if things go well, I'm still looking for any living example of this, but one day if things go well, I'm going to understand everything. And I will act skillfully in every situation, and I will come in and I will just save the day. Until then, though, I'm going to keep quiet. That's a magnificent excuse to carry around. Because it seems so humble, right? Well, I'm, I'm not qualified, but I'm trying. Another way we can get the wrong message, again, is to imagine that the problems we see are simply problems of our own perception. Right? Injustice? Well, that's a very dualistic view. Right? In the absolute realm, right, there is no oppressor and there is no oppressed. Right? There is no spoon. So what I need to do then is I need to see past this surface narrative, which I understand to be false because I'm Buddhist, and see the deeper narrative, which is that we're all interconnected. Right? And that that person who is being shot at is also shooting himself. It's easy to make fun of this, but <laughs> this is pervasive, right? It's very difficult not to go there at some point. It's very difficult not to imagine the precepts in this way. It's very difficult not to imagine the world around us in this way because it's fascinating. It's a mental game. Anything that seems out of whack, you can just kind of you just pull it a little tighter and then it's fixed. Well, now it's really, you just kind of, it's like smoothing a bed sheet. Okay. <laughs> That's all I had to do. And then the extension of that, the extension of the idea that all of this is really just my own mental problem is, of course, the belief that everyone else's suffering is also just their mental problem. Right. And so when whole classes of people are mistreated, when people are left out, when people are disempowered, what they need is some Buddhism. Right. They need someone to come in and explain to them the nature of suffering. Right. They need some tips on how to transcend this stuff. That would be great. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm lucky I got it. 
you know. And if, I, and if I'm being useful, maybe I could share some of that wisdom with someone else. I'm guilty of all of these, by the way. But, but what I want to say tonight, in response to all of those, is that they are excuses. And that there is a political side to Buddhism. A kind of radical one. Now, one of the more, I think, uh, piercing criticisms of Buddhism that have been made in the last century is, and I think it was Carl Jung who said this. His criticism was that, yeah, Buddhism offers a lot of wisdom, but it doesn't care at all about citizenship. It's not interested in how to be a citizen in the world. Now, I don't think that Buddhism needs to answer every question, necessarily. I don't think that Buddhism needs to necessarily draw up for us a definition of citizenship any more than I think that Buddhism needs to offer a magic pill to help us get over our childhood trauma. Right? Buddhism does what Buddhism does. But I do think that Buddhism offers a possibility for citizenship, a model for citizenship, that is worth exploring. And the first part of discussing that, in my mind, is to assert that Buddhism always, always is anti-establishment. And I say that, and I, I love putting it out there because I just said that Buddhism is anti-something, right? And I think that's very jarring. It's even jarring for me to let it come out of my mouth because there it is, the dualism again. How can Buddhism be anti-anything? Buddhism includes everything. Buddhism loves everything. But here's what I mean. The establishment, whatever that is, has to do with institutions that are fundamentally, primarily concerned with their own self-perpetuation. whether we are talking about corporations or governments. Continuing is the first goal. Whether there is a noble second goal or not, the first goal is always to keep going. This should feel very familiar because this is also our first goal. And Buddhism is very clear that the drive towards self-protection, towards self-perpetuation, is delusion. And Buddhism, if it's anti-anything, is anti-delusion. Corporations may have secondary or tertiary dreams of benefiting the world. If so, that's great. Some of them don't. 
Governments, of course, spring from often a very noble vision, a very noble ideal of what the world should be, though not all of them do. Right? But we can see in the way that politics play out, we can see in the way that industries control themselves, that the first thing always is to make sure that everything is still there tomorrow, more or less exactly as it was today. Right? Which is why, uh, at least in the United States, you can never, never, never get Congress to vote down their own salaries, for example. The rest of the country could be on fire, but certain things need to stay the same. That's very, 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 very important from that view, from that institutional view. I am, uh, I've been thinking about this today. And what I keep going back to, and it's a little funny, is Star Wars. I know we have some Star Wars fans today. Uh, one of the most famous moments in movie history, Luke Skywalker is, is hanging by, by a thread. He's hanging by one hand in space at the end of Empire Strikes Back. And the person he hates most in the world, the person that represents the evil establishment, the, literally the face of the establishment is looking over him and he reaches out his hand and he says, I'm your father. It's great. It's great. And this changes everything. Absolutely everything. And you can see, I mean, one of the, one of the most famous and most mocked moments in movie history is what happens right after that, because the look on Luke's face, right, is one of just crazy devastation. His world has been pulled out from under him. And then a couple years pass, and we start the next movie, and the first time that we see him, he's kind of got it together. We don't get to see his process, but we know that he's been thinking about one thing probably all day, every day. He's been thinking about this revelation. The revelation that the thing that he hated the most, the thing that he thought was the biggest problem in the universe is just like him. And what we discover as we keep going is that through this process, he has come to a completely different relationship to that figure. Right? Because now he's convinced that he can change his dad. And the whole rest of the story is based on that conviction. You can't just kill the bad guys. There's actually, and I, I can't believe I'm still going with this, but at the end of Return of the Jedi, right, we're actually, he's offered the opportunity. 
right? He could kill Darth Vader. He's got it. And, and, and the establishment behind the establishment says to him, dead on, you could have his job, but you could do it better. Right? Which is what everybody wants to believe, which is the, the, the dream of revolution. Right? I'm going to overthrow the establishment, and then I'm going to step in, and I'm going to do it right. And he sees through that. This is, I think, for me, as someone who is deeply concerned about the, the forces that work around us, and I've made no secret of how I, I am completely convinced that the air we breathe is trying to convince us not only to buy things, but to be distracted from what's important. The painful and powerful discovery of our lives is to look at something like the big, bad corporate overlord, the, the corporation that seems to have no heart, Look at it and say, well, that, you know what that is? It's greedy. It's self-centered. It's self-protective. And it's only interested in saving itself. And to say, oh, yeah, that's me. This is the painful thing that I think Buddhism offers in relationship to citizenship. And it does, in many ways, come down to this issue of non-dualism, but not in the way that we want, not in the kind of airy way where everything is just magically resolved. It has to do with seeing ourselves in the problem, whatever the problem is. It has to do with saying, I know why that's happening. I think one of the things that's offered to us is that we don't have to feel distrustful of whatever it is that we call the establishment. Because distrust means you're never quite sure, right? Distrust means I feel that maybe this person or this institution is not working in my best interest, but maybe this time it is. There's a, a moment of doubt. Well, Buddhism says, no. If you know how you work, you know how that works. You don't have to feel distrust because you already understand. And of course, the power of Darth Vader up to that point, up to that moment of saying, I'm your father, is that he knew the whole time. And you can see how there are these entities that survive and, and do continue in part because they understand the parts of our, us that we don't want to look at ourselves. Right? They recognize our greed. <laughs> they recognize our own desire to, to maintain our own image of who we are. And they say, well, let me help you with that. 
As long as we insist that that's not something we're dealing with, as long as we say, oh no, I'm not the greedy one, <laughs> right? There's a power imbalance. I think it's important in the context of this conversation, uh, just because I think it complicates it, to discuss the difference between institutions and traditions briefly. Because that relates very directly to what we're doing here. And I brought, I brought a prop. I never bring props, but I found a great prop today. This is my pen. And you can see it says Soto Zen on it, right? And on the side, it has the address of one of the head temples uh, of the Soto Zen sect in Japan, uh, Sojiji. An institution gave me this pen. A tradition can't give me a pen. It seems simple, but it's good to distinguish. Right? Because, because we can get lost on this path. <laughs> we can get lost in this distinction. Right? As a Soto Zen priest, I am part of an institution. We could even say that here in Halifax, I represent a certain institution. What I want to represent is a tradition. But it's easy to get stuck. An institution, and I can say this, you know, many of my good friends are also representatives of this institution. This institution's first goal, though they would never say this, is to continue until tomorrow. There are office buildings dedicated to that to making sure that there are, that all the documents are in, are in place and that there is enough money so that tomorrow they can come back and address what is believed to be the primary goal, which is to further the tradition. At its best, at its best, the institution embraces that lie <laughs> in a very kind of loving way, right? That what we're doing is upholding tradition. Sometimes, but it's secondary. It's always secondary because that's what an institution is. And if Zen Nova Scotia continues long enough, eventually it might become something of an institution, right? And then we will be right to question it. <laughs> And we will be right to ask, why can't it change? Hmm? Right. And again, the answer will be for the same reasons that we don't want to change. Even when we say we're open to change, right? we have these moments in our lives when everything feels very spacious and we say, you know, I'm really open to anything. Hmm? Well, you're not open to dissolution, right? You're just open to your narrative arc taking a little turn. You're open to self-improvement. You're open to maybe taking a dance class, <laughs> right? But you're not necessarily open to waking up tomorrow and the you of today 
not being there. Understanding that in ourselves, we can be both forgiving and deeply critical of that everywhere else. We can see how that works. I don't think Zen Nova Scotia will ever make pens. I don't see the value. But I'd say there's a 95% chance that at some point there's some sort of Zen Nova Scotia t-shirt because that's just what happens. (laughs) And when we face that moment, we have to be honest about what that moment is. Tradition is very tricky. I really believe, I deeply believe that tradition offers something without asking something in return. I think that that is maybe where we can see a clear distinction between tradition and an institution. Institutions ask for something back. But we can institutionalize tradition very easily. We can do it without noticing that we're doing it. We can say, well, this is how it's always been done. Therefore, the discussion is closed. Rather than remembering that knowing how it's always been done is an opportunity for depth. It's an opportunity for inquiry. It's not supposed to be an opportunity to make things smaller. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.